Hello and welcome to episode 327 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you once again in separate locations. I'm in Bull... I'm not in Boulevard Park, Washington. Ah! I'm in Seattle, Washington. Home of the Pelton cast. Over the four-time WNBA champion storm. Take me back. I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. It's an unprecedented second consecutive flu game from me. Oh. <laughs> As I head into day 10, the final day of my isolation. Are you are you done with isolation, whether you get a negative test or not? Yeah, I think ten days is the limit. You're, per CDC you're not considered guidelines. infectious beyond that. So you're you're going wherever at that point. This is actually I'm genuinely curious. Wherever. I see. I don't think I would go out in public without the negative. You'll probably get a negative test. I don't know if I'd go out in public without the negative test. One would think. So we'll see. So again, no uh, no beer this week, but uh, we yourself. do have. Well, okay. What do you've got there? Well, this is a white claw pineapple. Yeah, that's not a beer, so it's still true. I got I got to get my juices flowing for the takes that are coming because I have written by far my longest takes ever. I don't know if that's a uh, promise or a threat for the listener. Uh, we do have tests. <laughs> History of earthquakes in the greater oh, Seattle God. area. <laughs> Now, this year we actually you're pretty breakdown dating back to 1600 volcanic eruptions i once did a school project on the history of eruptions of Mount Rainier. uh the the uh, overdue people well yeah. all right our toast this week the last time the mariners won the world series mount rainier erupted. <laughs> uh congrats to julio rodriguez and the mariners uh-huh. On completing a long-term contract extension, we'll talk through the particulars of this after oh, your take. I can't but wait. Oh, the important the thing is, into that so naturally. Julio's going to be here for a long, long time. You're going to want the longest take in uh, Mariners hot takes history, followed by an extraordinarily complicated contract. I mean, it's not that complicated. We're not going to get like into each permutation of like what happens based on his various MVP finishes. But uh, we did not do an emergency pod for this, despite the request. So we'll we'll get to get to this later on this week's pod. I, I mean, we could talk about the particulars of it. The reality was Ichiro or Ichiro. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Well, congrats to Ichiro on going into the Mariners Hall of Fame. <laughs> not Ichiro for these next years. The reality was he would get paid though at that MVP. Um, <laughs> M- MVP. We knew that Julio was going to be here for another six years after this, at least, right? It wasn't well, like... I mean, there could be... What it really forestalled was the Juan Soto situation where he turned down an extension and they traded him ahead of you know, him potentially becoming a free agent to try to you know, recoup that value. So I, I wouldn't say that necessarily. I don't think the Mariners wanted to go through another A-Rod situation where you just let the contract play out and the guy signs for 200 you know, so with another team for two hundred and fifty-two million in Arod's case, many, many more million in it's a, it's a case. different era than that, though. Like, it's definitely a different era than the Arod era when that happened. Um, but like, it wasn't like all of a sudden, oh, Julio's gonna be like he's back or whatever for next year. 
right? This was like projecting <laughs> way into the future. Oh, we are projected way out there. So, like, I feel like the the excitement of it was like, yes, very exciting that Julio is going to be a Mariner probably for the entire bulk of his, at least the prime of his career or whatever. But it was also like, that was probably going to happen anyway. Like, maybe Fantasy Genius is going to have kids by the time Julio Rodriguez, this, this uh, extension covers. So, it's a long extension. All right, next up, congrats to the Storm's Brianna Stewart for name, being named to the all-defensive first team for the first time in her career after being previously voted to the second team three times. Ezzy Megbegore and Gabby Williams joined her on the second team each of their first appearances. Congrats to Lauren Jackson and the Albury Wodonga Bandits on winning the NBL One East title on Sunday. LJ had 18 points and 11 boards in the final as Albury Wodonga beat Sutherland. 85-72, they'll play the other regional NBL1 champion September 9th through 11th, though LJ's availability then unclear with the World Cup looming, and also because she may still be signing for the Storm in time for the WNBA Finals. Uh, congrats to the Dream Team for winning the crossovers title behind 34 points in Sunday's final from Jamal Crawford. <laughs> He's on the Dream Team, Jamal Crawford? Yeah. Well, man, he, he picks the teams. He names the teams. <laughs> it's like if you had a, a Champions League of fantasy football, and then you just put yourself into the Champions <laughs> League, whether you'd earned it or not. By default, <laughs> uh, we did also get the news hours after we recorded last week. Sadly, that uh, Chet Holmgren suffered a season-ending was Franck injury at the crossover. So, uh, get well soon to Chet Holmgren, who uh, underwent surgery earlier this week. I, I will say I'm very, very hot today after literally temperature wise. Uh, it's quite hot in the city of Seattle, <laughs> but uh, this is not the way that I want Chet to go down. Right. Like, look, I am not cheering for Chet as a professional basketball player in the city of Oklahoma, but I don't want it to be because of injury. You know what I mean? Like I, I want colossal on the court Morrison style failure from Chet Holmgren. And so I, I don't want anybody to think that I'm satisfied with Chet missing the season. Yes. If anything, uh, long-term, it's probably a, a uh, bad thing to happen for not the, the Sonics. Yeah. yeah. Yes. All right. Last week, lastly this week, we're remembering Ordo Berto, who died last week at age 95, the longtime head of Oberto Specialty Meets, beginning at age 16 after the death of his father, founder Constantino Oberto in 1943. Art was behind Oberto's famed marketing, including the branded Jerky Mobile Lincoln Town Car. He drove around town and their longtime unlimited hydroplane sponsorship. That's awesome. Uh, and, and part of the long Italian lineage, whoa, there we go. Part of the long Italian lineage of uh, immigrants to Seattle's kind of Rainier Valley uh, area that our grandparents were also part of. Um, and awesome to see how successful so many of those folks ended up becoming. Yeah. So-called garlic gulch. All right. We we missed this last week. We actually have a Seattle food update, which is we need to talk about our search for Seattle's best Italian beef sandwich, which so far has consisted of eating what, one, one Italian, beef, Italian sandwich. beef sandwich. Although there's another one out there that we supposedly need to get to according to the Seattle Times. We've but, eaten uh, one in Portland also. Correct. I guess we're going for the Northwest. Yeah, North, Northwest. Italian beef sandwich. Vancouver's is good to be included. This is the Derby <laughs> match of Italian beef sandwiches. 
I gotta say, I mean, I don't know if the pastrami would be as good, but this was perhaps a better Italian beef sandwich than the one we had in uh So where did you go? So a place called West of Chicago that had previously operated, I think as a pop-up, maybe as a uh, truck, but uh, opened a brick-and-mortar location in West Seattle, not far from me. And their main draw is Chicago-style pizza, but they also have on the menu the Italian beef sandwich. And it says right there on the menu, as seen on the bear. They they know why people are coming in. Dang, okay. They get it. They know what's going on here. There's going to come a time, like, if, if we're being honest, the Bear's not that successful of a TV show in the grand scheme of things. No, I like it's... the idea that, like, four years from now, people would be, like, as seen on the Bear, and they're like, what Bear? What are you talking A Bear ate this? I mean, there's going to be multiple seasons of the Bear, I so know. there's I still know. time. So uh, at TRC Snow. They're in the lasso zone. It's going to become huge. I don't know if it's going to be that huge. At TRC Snow, hipped us to this one. Uh, said that his wife from Chicago confirmed the legitimacy, so had to go. I thought the pizza was quite good. Excellent cheese on the Chicago-style pizza. Uh, as for the beef, I thought the the bread was much better than the one that we had in Portland and really kind of authentic. It was funny. I, I went through Instagram and looked at the photo that I had posted of the Italian beef that I had at Portillo's the first time that I went to Chicago, and it Let's looked identical. Instagram posts. Yes, it looked identical. I'm an Al's Beef aficionado. It was my favorite of the those two spots in Chicago, but it looked identical to the one from Portillo's, and the bread was quite delicious. So recommend checking that out for sure. I gotta eat this. I gotta eat this like stat. West of Chicago again is the location in West Seattle. All of Seattle, west of Chicago, but particularly West Seattle. All right, with that. Thanks. Thank you. It's also the reason I will not be going there anytime soon. <laughs> with that, it's time for your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariner's hot takes coming at you. It's time to talk about E-Trail. And I want to caveat this. Look, I think E-Trail is probably a great person. I've heard nothing negative about him in his entire career. I saw him one time on the street in Lower Queen Anne, and he was a very striking person. He was like somebody who you couldn't even look away from seeing him. Extraordinarily fashionable. I loved looking at E-Trail, even for a second, as like a normal human being. He's been a great ambassador for Japanese baseball and had nothing but an exemplary career. Which is why it's so unfortunate that he is one of the most overrated and least interesting baseball stars of the last three decades. (sighs) Someone who is incredibly lucky to join an excellent Mariners team in 2001 and enjoyed success and recognition doing many of the things in baseball we shortly thereafter realized were not all that valuable to winning. There was a clear climb and peak in Mariner's history, and sadly, Ichiro's greatest achievement was an equivalent to, I don't know, if like Russell Wilson's only achievement was throwing a pick from the one. While in the 90s, we saw a great march upward of baseball in Seattle, 
one of the most exciting groups of players ever assembled in the free agency era. What Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar, and Randy Johnson mean to me as an, establish, as, as an establishment of baseball in Seattle. Young, flashy by 90s standards, mo modest by current standards, fun, and with moments we are still commemorating 27 years later. Ichiro is the exact opposite. His time with the Mariners started with a bang, albeit with him probably being the third or fourth best hitter on the team. He then oversaw the complete demise of baseball in Seattle, a fading into such obscurity that they became one of the biggest jokes in professional sports, including the Bills. And obviously this isn't all, all Ichiro's fault, but his brand of baseball did not directly contribute to winning in any particularly meaningful way. He's somebody who, you're just shaking your head. He's somebody who over his entire, uh, He's somebody who, over his Mariners career, ended up accumulating one of the best wars in team history by being a slightly good player. And when looking at it deeper, his best win probability added season ranks 21st in Mariners history after the GOAT Phil Bradley and that monster 1980 Bruce Bochte season, who is different from Bruce Bochy. I looked it up. His best career war seasons rank him 14th and 21st, respectively, in Mariners history. He was a good batting average hitter, number one in Mariners history. But then when you look at on-base percentage, he drops all the way down to ninth. And when you look at OPS, possibly one of the best simple measurements of a player's hitting value, his best season as a Mariner was 44th after Italian Mariners legend Paul Sorrento, Tom Pachorek, Pelncast favorite Phil Bradley. As a defender, he was fine. 10th in career defensive war as a Mariner while playing the most games of any Mariner ever as a position player, excluding Edgar Martinez, obviously. Build the statue for Brendan Ryan. He's a consensus first ballot Hall of Famer who played in two playoffs ever. And guess what? He was a monster in that 2001 ALDS. Lights out. I don't remember it. I wasn't paying attention myself. But guess what happened after that? The ALCS happened after that, where he had an OPS of 640 and a negative championship wins added. Is this your king? He almost pitched in as many playoff games as he played in his entire Hall of Fame career. But if okay, if to you what baseball is, is slap singles and 60 wins, then fuck it. He's a Hall of Famer. You really feel proud of yourself, don't you? Where did you get this war stat single season? Because the leaderboard I'm looking at, which I'm sure is the same one you were looking at because I, the Brendan Ryan stat matches up, has him with the fourth best season in franchise history after A-Rod 2000, Griffey 96, a year where he should have won MVP, and A-Rod 96, a year where he stole first place votes from Griffey and was the reason Griffey didn't win MVP. Offensive war, Just not ahead. overall war, offensive war. Okay, but why are we splitting out into offensive and defensive at the single season level? Like Because it's a more friendly stat for me. What are you talking about? Oh, okay. Obviously, that's why. Oh, good, good. I'm okay, like, you. that's great. He had a bunch of bad defensive seasons and then one good defensive season that he managed to pair with one okay offensive season. Was that 2004 that you're talking about? It was, yes. How many games did the Mariners win in 2004? <laughs> Baseball is not about individual stars. I understand that, but how many games did the Mariners win in 2004? He did it He did it presiding over meaningless baseball. You keep saying presiding over. He didn't run the fucking team. He John Ellis did. and 
Howard Lincoln were presiding over the mediocrity. Ichiro was just along for the ride. His win probability added in that season was... I don't I don't think that win probability added is as meaningful a metric as you think it is. 3.2. Again, it's not a very meaningful metric to Ichiro because he's terrible at it in every single possible way. But there are players who played on bad teams who had better win probability added. The 1980 Mariners had better win probability added. You can't that just, just means you hit a game-winning home run. That's how win probability added That works. is you an important that, right? thing to do in baseball. Are you I mean, not it, clear on this? It that- is, but it's not a measure of a player's skill. It's a randomness whether you hit a game-winning home run or that home run happens in the first inning of a game. It is a like randomness either- that the top 10 in Mariners history was Edgar Martinez, Edgar Martinez, Alvin Davis, Alex Rodriguez, Alex Rodriguez, Ken Griffey Jr., Alvin Davis, Ken Griffey Jr., Brett Boone, who was monster in 2001, should have won the MVP instead of Ichiro in 2001. The GOAT, Bruce Bakhti, Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, Edgar Martinez, I mean, Edgar Martinez, Alex Rodriguez, Nelson Cruz, John Allred, these are not bad players. Do you they're, understand what I'm saying? They're bad players, but where's Elvin Davis in that list? Where's Elvin Davis' best season by war? <sighs> it's 24th. I can tell you, I'm looking at it. Was that because he wasn't playing as high leverage of a defensive position, though? Probably. Yeah, and just certainly not contributing on the base paths. You never talk about, like, you talk about Ichiro be, not being a fun player to watch. Stolen bases are one of the most fun things in baseball. Are and they? Ichiro stole 56 of them as a rookie. In I his mean, MVP literally, season. when did Moneyball come out? 2004? If if your complaint is that he's a slap singles hitter, if you skid a single and steal second, you've reached two bases. It's a lot harder to steal second than it is to hit a double. Okay, but he did it a lot of times because he stole 56 bases to lead the league. Okay, great. You still have a chance of getting caught stealing when you steal also. You do. You also have a chance of getting caught stealing when you hit outs, which Ichiro is very good at not doing. In this one season you're talking about, how did he? how was he on the base pass beyond that? He didn't steal as many bases, but he stole at least 29 every season, or at least 26 every full season with the Mariners. He had one very good season in 2004, and he had a pretty nice season with a very good team in 2001. One of the best teams ever, Manier saying. I mean, it still was a top 10 season in Mariners history by overall war. That's fine. That's great. That's really nice. Top 10 in Mariners history by overall war. But he is so clearly sub basically every other Mariners star ever. You can't, you can't question this. Do you disagree he, with that? And he's he has a lesser who... peak than those guys. I mean, also the, the other, the problem with this idiotic argument is, you know, who loves Ichiro? Your King Ichiro. Ken Griffey Jr. loves Ichiro. That's was great. the one who presented him with the jacket on Saturday. Ken Griffey Jr. can love Ichiro. It's not, to me, it's not a, a, you only have to like one or the other. Ken Griffey Jr. can like Ichiro. That's great that Ken Griffey you Jr. You do likes act Ichiro. like you can the only, that saying is... anything nice about Ichiro is therefore implicitly diminishing the 90s Mariners. Ken Griffey Jr. liking Ichiro is not the equivalent to Ichiro being a winning baseball player or to even being an interesting baseball player. I just, I think, I just I think can't believe that you Ken have Griffey chosen Jr. is this not Hill. in the Mariners' front office at this point. Right? Like, if, if Ichiro were a modern baseball player, do you think he would be an all-star? Do you think he would be yes. an annual all-star? Do you think he would ever appear on the MVP ballot? 
he he first in his 2004 season where he led the league in war. Yes, I think he would have appeared on the okay, MVP okay. ballot in that one season. But the way that we value baseball has changed over time. It hasn't Do you understand changed that? as much as you think it has. And the way that we value Let's defense and base running has Mike also Trout changed. Seasons where he didn't, or where he won the MVP as a not make playing in the playoffs. The point is it. The question isn't is Ichiro as good as Mike Trout. He's he's a very good probably he's a, he's a fringe all star and that's awesome that's so great for Ichiro to be but where the fucking where's Brett Boone in the Mariners Hall of Fame right like there are players where's Robinson Cano where's Alex Rodriguez in the Mariners Hall of Fame you know that Alex Brett Boone and Alex Rodriguez famously more. did not play eleven and a half seasons here you so understand we're, we're that longevity him, is a thing that matters eleven and a half seasons and played in one playoffs. The Again, point of baseball is to win the games. Brett Boone made it to the playoffs more often than not as a Mariner. I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> I, it seems like a, an exaggeration. Alex yes, Rodriguez was on run. the team in. Or no, the he had the same. Brett Boone had the same number of playoff runs. He came back in two thousand one. So, Alex Rodriguez was on the team in the majority of the Mariners' playoff runs. Are you gi- you're giving him credit now for the '95 season where he, he was, was a there. pinch runner? He was there. You see him jumping, don't you? He was jumping. I agree. Ichiro was there for the team in 2002 that collapsed, and then every single one of the teams after that that didn't make the playoffs. Perhaps individual Playing players don't have time. that much influence in baseball. And it's actually Why about the quality are... of your entire team and that team was woefully, colossally mismanaged by ownership. And they... that's what you should be upset about, about the Ichiro Hall of Fame weekend, is seeing Howard Lincoln and John Ellis there taking a victory lap when they, they wasted should... his career. I mean, I I agree with that, too. This is not a <clears throat> pro-management take at any point. But the you reality is... If, he presided if, over stuff. If if he looking he at... was the one who was like, hey, let's give all the money to Sean Figgins. <laughs> Look, I will always defend that Adrian Beltre signing. Oh, well, we agreed with that. Uh, it was a great signing, and Adrian Beltre is a better mirror than Ichiro ever was. The reality was there are so many players who did so much more in such shorter periods of time. Like, yes, Ichiro played for a long period of time, but throughout his career was he a You guys, we retired player. Nate McMillan's jersey because he played exclusively for the Sonics. Like, I love Nate that. Nate McMillan is Wildly not a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's not, no. Also, the things that Nate McMillan did became more valuable over time. When we reassessed how you play basketball, when we became headier about what things contribute to winning, Nate McMillan looked better than he did at the time. Ichiro looks worse than he did at the time. You're Again, you're wildly overstating this. Things haven't changed. Moneyball came out in Ichiro's fourth season, <laughs> third season. His name was not mentioned. I... I think he had to have come up at least once. The Greek god of singles. Uh, but any, anyways, it's not like the, it was all of a sudden in like 2000, it was like five years ago that we discovered that, hey, uh, slugging matters on base percentage matters. Like these concepts existed. Yeah, they existed. And that's why the A's were going to the fucking playoffs during Ichiro's entire prime. Well, Ichiro was winning 60 games. They were in the same division doing the same shit. I understand that management was mishandling the team, but the reality was they had Ichiro on their team and it meant that they had to play a certain way. I wonder, is Miguel Tejada's MVP season any better than Ichiro's season by war? I bet the answer is no. 
MVP season by war? Miguel Tejada won MVP. Or best season by war. Oh, well, yes, I guess that's that's a fair question. Because we not clearly established that. that he was not that good. His war was 7.7 each rose in 2001. Miguel Tejada topped out at uh, 7.4 war. He had 5.7 war the year that he won MVP. So That's great. If this was an Oakland A's podcast, I would give the same take about Miguel Tejada. But this is the point here is if you switched Miguel Tejada and Ichiro, the A's would have been just as good, and he would have won MVP there as well. Ichiro would have won MVP. Yes, Oakland Ichiro would have won MVP in two thousand two. I believe it was two thousand three, but no, no, yeah, it was two thousand two. Okay, great. I, but just You've like, successfully proven that Ichiro is a better player than Miguel Tejada. <laughs> but this is my point, is that individuals don't matter that much. The A's didn't win because of their individual talent. They went because, one, because of the fact that they had an extremely deep roster from 1 to 25 and had amazing pitching that really didn't get fit into the money ball narrative. And again, like, I just don't understand. Like, who do you think you're convincing with this argument? <laughs> what do you mean? I don't, you don't need to convince somebody with an argument. I'm just making the argument. When, you, when people on ESPN go on and give takes, are they just trying to convince people or are they giving a take? Yeah, but they're getting paid to do that. You're not getting paid to be disliked by people for your Ichiro takes. You're a, just doing this out of because you sincerely believe it on some level. It is a reality that I feel in my bones. I was basically not a Mariners fan for the entirety of Ichiro's career in Seattle. And whose fault is that? Ichiro's. <laughs> Howard Ellis and John Lincoln. Howard Lincoln I, and John Ellis. It's not about success, though. I stopped being a Mariners fan before then. It's partially the fan base, you fuckers out there. <laughs> and just there being too many of you. Now all of a sudden it feels fine to be part of a large fan base. It didn't feel the same in the early 90s. Uh, we were in the sellout era at the time. Still will never forgive, no doubt, for Tragic Kingdom. But uh, it just was something that this was our team, and all of a sudden it became everybody's team, and Ichiro was the sign of that. And then when it became everybody's team, they got really bad, and Ichiro was still there. So Ichiro's the sign Again, of sounds like you blaming Ichiro for things that have nothing to do with him and that you probably need to work through with a therapist. <laughs> We can leave it there. That's fine. That's good. Well, you know who's going to have a chance to surpass all of Ichiro's records? Hello. That's Julio, who caught the uh, caught the first pitch from him on opening day uh, at, Ichiro. at Ichiro's request. <laughs> okay. Not that, was, that was a thing that came up on, on Saturday. If Julio no, Rodriguez requested it, I'd hate Julio now. <laughs> wait, really? No, obviously. <laughs> you were saying that King Ruby Jr. likes Ichiro, therefore that means something? Yes. Sam Haggerty respectfully shook Ichiro's <laughs> hand, so he's done. So the base extension here for Julio, $120 million over seven years through 2029, which buys out Julio's arbitration years plus his first two years of potential free agency. Now then... After the 2028 season, the Mariners have a decision to pick up a team option whose length and value 
will be determined by Rodriguez's finishes in MVP voting. At the low end, if he never finishes in the top 10 from 2022 through 2029, that option will be worth $200 million for eight years. If Rodriguez maxes out the escalators by winning MVP twice or finishing in the top five four times, it would be $350 million for 10 years, which would take him through 2039, <laughs> potentially on this extension. In the event the Mariners decline that team option, Rodriguez then gets a player option after the 2029 season worth a minimum $90 million over five years, meaning he's guaranteed at least $210 million in a worst-case scenario for him. That option also features features escalators based on all-star selections and silver slugger awards maxing out at $125.5 million. And then it includes a full no-trade clause. So as long as Julio wants to play for the Mariners, he's going to play for the Mariners for at least the next... 12 seasons which is a lot i think they really they did some work in this deal and it's one of those deals where you're like why can't they do it this you know in your head you just kind of like work it out you work out the math and you're like well we could do this but then we'll have this in there and then this and then this and then this but that shit never actually happens in real life right they actually did it like they did what is sort of a common sense deal which protects julio and it protects the team to a certain extent and it just sort of makes sense all around. If Julio is what we expect him to be, he's going to get paid. And if Julio is maybe slightly worse than we expect him to be, he's still going to get paid, but the Mariners are not having to pay him $35 million a year. It's, it's kind of one of the most practical deals that I feel like we've seen in baseball. I mean, hopefully it's going to be a template for other teams going forward in terms of how they handle things because of the creativity of this and, and how balanced it seems. I mean, I feel like still, like if Julio is is good enough to earn even the biggest possible uh, extension, three hundred and fifty million over ten years will seem like a huge bargain at that point. But that's what I was thinking also. I, I, that's I kind of the, the trade off. Baseball for contracts the are going up that exponentially. We'll see. It's just hard to say because, like the the length, the time scale is so massive. Like ten years. But what are what the, is ten years of Julio worth? Like, like I don't look up Bryce Harper's contract. You know, like A Rod in two thousand, right? Got twenty five million a year. Yes, but he also was hitting free agency at what age twenty six? I won't say. Whereas Julio, in this case, even if when he begins that extension, will be I believe thirty at that point. Bryce Harper hit free agency at twenty six. One of the best players in baseball. And his deal was the deals have just gotten really long. That was like a twelve-year right. deal that averages out to about twenty-five million. There's a bunch of twenty-seven. God, was twenty-five when he had free agency. A Rod is a wild. better player than Bryce Harper is, but like, if you were to look at it inflation-wise, the fact that that deal happened in two thousand and that the Harper deal happened in two thousand and sixteen, like, yeah. it, it's not. It's not as much money as 2019. It's not as much money as you would have guessed it was going to go up. But you look at it and you're like Bryce Harper as one of the best players at one of the youngest ages was getting paid a couple of million dollars to play for the Nationals and play at an MVP caliber. And Julio is going to be getting paid 15 million from the Mariners. Like that's kind of why it's such a colossal win-win. Right. And 
it's certainly the like the the nature of that first period is still so team friendly that that's part of what facilitated making this deal possible. So, uh, the Mariners did play some games in addition to celebrating Ichiro and extending Julio Rodriguez over the weekend. Took three out of four from the Indians in a uh, uh, got a got a win in the lone Sam Haggerty start of the weekend before he had to leave that game due to injury and hadn't oh. started since. I was looking, before we get into Haggerty numbers, I was thinking about this this offseason contract. So Carlos Correa signed a deal this offseason for $35 million only over three years or whatever, and it's just a player option each year at $35 million. So more money, but not the long-term investment that somebody like Bryce Harper has. Right, which I think is a big part of it. Uh, Mariners now up to 25-9 and nine in Onofrio's starts. Which would rank him as the best baseball player in the history of time, correct? It, that team, that winning percentage would be the best, best ever for a team, yes. Sam Haggerty's win percentage personally is better than Ichiro's win percentage on the 2001 Seattle Mariners, just so we're clear, correct? I mean, I haven't double-checked whether Ichiro missed any games. That's either what the record was when Ichiro missed games. <laughs> I think he probably played in a cool 162 games. I don't no, know if you know about Ichiro. He only, he only played in 157 that year. Really? He yeah. played 162 quite a bit. I assume that back then like, they were like, oh, he's this frail Japanese player. He can't possibly hold up a full 162 games. <laughs> uh, they went 107 and 45 in his starts. That's a 703 winning percentage as compared to 735. There we go. Enough there it is. 2022. <laughs> so this is this is the official Sam Haggerty best win percentage in baseball history watch, and we are still right on track. Oh, even more on track. Slightly more on track. Uh, Mariners then, after a day off Monday, started a series in Detroit on Tuesday in impressive fashion, putting up nine runs early and cruising to a 9-3 victory in that one. The uh, tied for the number one wild card in the AL with uh, about a three with a three and a half game cushion now to make the wild card playoff odds up to ninety five percent at FanGraphs. It's definitely getting real. It is getting very real. Yes, especially as we head towards September in the final month of the season. Uh, final full month of the season because it got pushed back a little bit. 33 games left for the Mariners if my math is correct here. It's not. What do you mean? <laughs> I'm sure it is. <laughs> All right. Well, any any other Mariners legends you'd like to trash before we move on? <laughs> because you've I would got never some... about Phil Bradley. <laughs> Phil Bradley. Who knew that was going to become a thing? Because you've got some more trashing to do about the Seattle Sounders who suffered a 2-1 loss on Friday to the rival Portland Timbers. Couldn't even get a win. The one place they've been nearly automatic of late, Providence Park. Got off to a great start with Yamar Gomez on Trane heading home in the eighth minute, but Portland equalized just before halftime on a harsh penalty call in the box that was not deemed worth checking with VAR. Timbers then got a deserved go-ahead goal from Sebastian Blanco just after the break and dominated the sloppy Sounders much of the second half. Sounders did have a couple of opportunities in the late stages, including a Jordan Morris header, but only landed one shot on goal after the early score. 
So under his playoff status, looking dire, they're now three spots out of the playoffs, though just two in terms of points per match, with seven matches left to play. Need the turnaround to begin this week with a pair of matches, the most crowded schedule the rest of the way. They'll be in Orlando Wednesday versus a team that's fifth in the East, but with a minus six goal differential. Orlando City have won three matches in a row. On Sunday night, Sounders back home to host one of the few teams behind them in the West standings, last place Houston, and clearly need full points from that match. I think I'm going to that. Oh, despite the fact that I was going to say about the sound, I don't have anybody to trash on the Sounders. I just have to give them the full. I don't think about you at all. Uh, <laughs> so that's worse somehow. Definitely worse. Uh, but I am going to go to that match. Are you going to root for Houston? <laughs> Anti-Sound. <laughs> All right, continuing a familiar theme. The I mean, for the record, I'm not cheering against the Sounders. This is not <laughs> Oklahoma City, Chet Holmgren territory. Now I'm weirdly cheering for Oklahoma City this next season. We'll see. Look, it's complicated. You're but... not happy the Sounders are bad. You're just the first to point out how bad they are. Yes. Uh, continuing a familiar theme, O.L. Reign fell behind 1-0 in the first half Friday in Orlando, despite generally having the better of play. They then equalized through Bethany Balser, heading home a Megan Rapino cross in the 56th minute, but looked headed for a draw entering stoppage time when Sofia Huerta found Rapino at the back post for a clinical finish on the winning goal, which Rapino celebrated by stripping her jersey for a yellow card and flexing for the camera, then bowing to the crowd. Uh, Reign still fifth in the NWSL standings, which are extremely tight at the top. Uh, a lot to play for the rest of the season. They'll have this weekend off due to an actual international break this time. Uh, NWSL also opened the negotiating period last week out of the first ever chance for players to become free agents. Megan Rapino is the Reign's lone qualified player, according to the league, but the Players Association is arguing that players with an option year should also qualify. That group includes the Reign's Lou Barnes, Tobin Heath, and Nikki Stanton. Do you think Rapino is going to hit free agency and sign somewhere else? <laughs> well, fiance does have an ownership share in another team. Oh, there but, we go. What What is the other team? The New York team? Gotham. 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 God, what a cool name. Much better than the Wave. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> the Wave continued to top, uh, or now top the NWSL standings. <laughs> I just love the idea that Megan Rapino is like, yeah, I'm moving to San Diego. <laughs> I don't think that's happening. New York is a, is plausible, but uh, unlikely. Look, the reality is a lot of us would like to move to San Diego. But uh, super jealousy for the wave. Yes. Super still with some unfinished business in the WNBA playoffs. Hello. The Storm got off to a strong start in the semifinals with a 76-73 win at Las Vegas in Sunday's game one, stealing home court advantage in this series. Storm led the vast majority of this game after taking an early 15-4 to edge, and Jewel Lloyd came up big again in the fourth quarter with 10 points in the final five minutes. Lloyd scored the game's only three points in the final minute 29, putting the Storm ahead for good as Kelsey Plum missed a pair of threes that would have tied the game in the final 33 seconds. As Zach Whitman pointed out, very, very unusual to be uh, excited when Kelsey Plum missed shots late in this game. Uh, you know what? It's been a while. Look, we're used to it, right? Uh, she she could come back and dominate at the crossover on the Dream Team, but like the reality <laughs> is when she's on the other side, it's all about the storm right now. So uh, game one of the series, I think you're going into this anticipating that the storm, they definitely weren't favored in the game. I, and they're not I favored picked in the Las series. Vegas. 
in in how many games? We didn't do specific games, but I probably would have said four. With uh, you expected them to win on the road in game four? Yeah. Wow. I mean, they they already beat a sold out. The story <laughs> at a sold out Corbett Pletcher. We've game. seen it. Subert's last home game, <laughs> last yes. regular season home game. They've they've, they've done it once. Oh, they could do not it again. Too big for the Aces. It is not. No. Uh so after game one, right, Storm go into Vegas, pick up a W. We've seen this a lot in the NBA where that definitely doesn't mean that the series is over. But these are shorter series than a seven-game series. And all of a sudden, one win is huge in getting to the next round. Does that change anything about your perspective about the series going forward? If you're projecting it now, you would have said aces in four. What, what are you saying now? I would probably say Storm in four is the most likely outcome followed wow. by aces in five. Like, so I think it's... I think it's they lose like, the next one and then win the next two on a row. <laughs> I just got a text from Mrs. Fantasy Genius. Oh my god, there's an August 31st, and I really have the same thought. <laughs> <laughs> Toast to September. September tomorrow. Oh no. Uh it really doesn't feel like there should be one more day in August. It it is interesting. So the stats are better than I expected for teams in these WNBA best of five series that win game one on the road. It's happened 10 times if you take away the bubble season where the Storm were one of the two teams that did it is they swept the Aces in the finals, but obviously that wasn't a road win. Uh, take those out. Teams that win game one on the road are 7-3 and three in the series in WNBA history in, in best of five formats. So a pretty good chance from that standpoint. It really feels like tomorrow should be September. <laughs> Okay, well, so, I mean, that being the case, obviously, Game 2 is a huge game uh, in Vegas on Wednesday night. If the Storm were to steal that one, they'd become prohibitive favorites in the series. Oh, yeah. At that point, you'd be talking about whether they can complete the sweep, for sure. Hello. Uh, it's, only I... happened, it's only happened once in a WNBA Best of Five series all-time that a team has won the first two games on the road. Okay. I, I mean, the reality is, if, if they were to sneak out that second game, you, you know, it's not like... By winning the first, they are more or less likely to win the second, right? Actually, no, they are less likely to win the second. Statistically speaking, they're less likely. Oh, yeah. Then there's like the, it's a well known kind of playoff theory in basketball called the zigzag theory that you favor whoever lost the previous game. Is, this, it, fa is this factored in statistically, though? Yes. I mean, basically, it's a case of the more you, you know, the more desperately you need to win in the series, the better you're going to do. Do you think that's true if you're looking at a large enough sample size? Or is this, is yes. this an anomaly of a small sample size? Uh, I think there was a period where it was probably stronger than it should have been. I think in the when people kind of first started paying attention to this theory in the NBA. But I mean, you can I mean, feel it, it makes in sense the NBA, logically. Right? When a team, when a favored team loses game one, you're like, they're going to win game two and then they're going to win game yeah. two on the road. We know what's up. You know what I mean? Or whatever. They're going to take a game on the road and all of a sudden it's going to come down to home court in game five. That to me is like, I've I've seen enough. I'm judging this more for NBA series. I've seen enough NBA series where I know that the Storm winning that game is great, and what it really means is they are likely to push this to a game five, not that they're going to close this out in four in Seattle. I mean, the the big thing was we're talking about Sue Bird's career. Uh, by winning, they guaranteed Sue at least two more games in Seattle, either game three or game four if the series goes that long, or if they do manage to somehow sweep, what then day, the next game. So Sunday would be game three in Seattle? 
Sunday is game three, and then Tuesday is game what are the four. Sounders, why am I going to that game? <laughs> well, there are different times, so you don't have to miss the storm. The storm play at noon. The Sounders play at six, I believe. Okay, you tell Coleman to hit me up. <laughs> I think those tickets are going to be a, a bit of a hot commodity at this point. Okay, harder to come by. Uh, and so when is game four in Seattle? Tuesday. Okay, should, and then game so it becomes becomes every other day after the first three games. There's three games over a week span, and uh, then every other long day. Long breaks. Uh, it's been very useful if you happen to be isolated with COVID. I have so many spiders in my basement, man. Tomorrow being September makes a lot of sense. <laughs> It'll feel like fall tomorrow when it's definitely September. Yes. Because August first uh, doesn't exist. The storm also, you know, could take advantage of that long break between game two game two and game three because they are going to be again in game two without Gabby Williams. Uh, has cleared concussion protocol, joined the team in Las Vegas, but ruled out for that game. Stephanie Talbot started in her place in game one. Uh, now, really... how long is the flight from Sydney, Australia to Las Vegas? For for Lauren? And and is she eligible to play in game two? No, she's not eligible to play in any of the games. No, I don't understand the international dateline. <laughs> I confidently do not understand the international dateline. But let's say Lauren Jackson gets on a plane right now in what is, I think the early afternoon in australia that's right check that i think that's right that's probably right. yes early afternoon in australia she's on a plane headed to las vegas are there direct flights from sydney australia to las vegas oh we learned when liz campage played there that there are not probably flying through lax i would assume yes okay so Lauren Jackson is flying right now, early afternoon in Australia. It's 11.08 p.m. as we're recording this. She's on a flight, I heard, to LAX, where she will reroute to Las Vegas. She's probably making it there in time, right, for game two. I feel like the jet lag would be an issue at that point. She's uh, Lauren fucking Jackson. This isn't Itro walking through that door. She's got playoff experience, okay? Lauren Jackson knows how to play in any place at any time. Yeah, the, the experience did not come immediately after getting off of a plane, though, from Australia. But Talbot did a really good job in place of Gabby Williams in Game 1. The fellow Aussie, Stephanie Talbot, uh, provided more of a floor spacing dimension for the Storm and uh, held up at the defensive end of the court, replacing you know, perhaps the league's best perimeter defender. So uh, we'll be the same groups for both teams. Vegas also, again, has ruled out Dierica Hamby, who uh, hasn't played in a couple weeks here due to a bone bruise in her knee. I'm excited is... for this game. I was out at Think Festival this weekend and couldn't watch game one, but I'm freaking ready for game two. There you go. That's 7 p.m. Wednesday night, ESPN 2. And the Mariners will be done, likely, right? Starting at 4 p.m. Yep. in Detroit. Yeah. Yep. All right. That's perfect. Man, I wish I had COVID. You do not. <laughs> I assure you. Do you, you want to hang not. out right now? <laughs> <laughs> you're sure you're not contagious tomorrow? Because <laughs> I would love to find a way to not be around my children. <laughs> Uh, I did not go to any festivals over the weekend. I was here, where I always am. Well, for the first time in, what is this, about nine months here, it is time to preview a UW football game. It is Husky Game Week as they host the Kent State Golden Flashes in the Don James Bowl. A little bit farther. A little bit farther. We're not counting those Bob Gregory games, right? Oh, I count those. If we're being honest... 
we were going to have to Super Bowl 49 an entire season because we remember what happened in week one last year. And I, oh, I think we do. I, I, I think the I think there's a safe assumption we're going to see this weekend. But I think there's a safe assumption that that's not going to happen again. And they were playing an opponent last year in week one. This gives us the the mindfulness to know that we shouldn't just look past this game. We shouldn't assume it's a foregone conclusion because these things can get tight. But I think we're heading into week one of the Kalen DeBoer, Ryan, Ryan Grubbs, Michael Penix Jr. era of the Washington Huskies feeling pretty good right now. Just Ryan Grubb for the record. There's only one, one of him as offensive coordinator. Uh, yes, the Huskies are 22 and a half point favorites in this game. The oh, exact they're, same they're covering margin. that by so much. The exact God, same margin. can we get to which... Vegas this weekend? They're winning by 45. Are you kidding me? It's the exact same margin by which they were favored over Montana entering week one That's last year. Bonkers. Put literally put my money down, right? You do not, they are gonna win this game by so many more points than that. I mean, you know, Kid State like went to a bowl game last year. You gotta give me a not so fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh they went seven and seven, but six and three in Mac play, losing the conference championship to Northern Illinois, and then the fi- famous Idaho Potato Bowl to Wyoming. Uh, they went 0-3 against major conference opponents against a brutal non-conference slate, losing at number 5 Iowa, at number 6 Texas A&M, and at Maryland. This year, in addition to UW, they'll also face Georgia and Oklahoma. Holy shit. Oh my god. Yeah. I, I Respect to Kent State, though. They're, they're playing the best. Uh, they were picked atop the MAC East by coaches. They returned leading rusher Marquez Cooper and leading receiver Dante Cephas, who both had 1,000-yard seasons in 2021. Cephas was the first Kent State receiver with at least 1,000 receiving yards since 1997. But they are replacing starting quarterback Dustin Crum with backup Colin Schley, who will make his first career start at Husky Stadium. Kent State offense likes to play at a fast pace. They were 11th in the nation in plays per game last season. They were 45th in FBI efficiency on offense, but number 119 out of 130 in both defense and special teams. And as a result, FPI not nearly as high on Kent State as the media. Uh, they are projected 113th in the nation and 7th in the MAC. They're, they're kind of <clears throat> sort of a, a classic up-tempo. Uh, like, uh, do they pass often? Is that what you're describing to me? Are they are they like a post mic They're actually team? kind of more known for their running game okay, with so that they're, tempo they're offense. So I'd say Kelly type team. Yes. Okay. Yes. Or uh, uh, who's the former Auburn coach? Who I can't think of off the Gus top of my head. Yeah. Okay. I feel kind of more in that vein. I mean, pretty balanced if you had a thousand yard rusher and a thousand yard receiver. So, but... so they're they're spreading it out though a little bit, going fast, no huddle, right? They're going to push this Husky defense then. Yeah, it'll definitely be an early test for them. Which... I think that's actually kind of exciting to get to get a team who's not playing like uh, a pro style offense necessarily. Somebody who's going to push you. You know, and test the depth of this UW defense, the the um, you know the fitness of the UW defense, and also throw at them an offense that they're probably not going to see all that much in Pac-12 play. Yeah, I wouldn't expect so. I mean, also like look after last year's canceled season, kind of want to see some points. Let's put some points on the board. So playing yeah. a terrible defense also seems like an appealing thing to me. I I think you, you know we understand as coaches <clears throat> or as programs <laughs> if you're hiring a new not you and I as coaches. Okay, I was, was going to be an all time coaches corner. <laughs> we we understand as programs when they're replacing coaches, they're you're looking for the thing that you didn't have, right? 
And what you what you dub did not have to begin last year was really an offensive philosophy, or at least a winning offensive philosophy. They were on the Ichiro style, right? And and what they did is they they grounded it and they pounded it, and it wasn't winning football. And we saw that very very early against Montana. Kalen DeBoer is somebody who we saw again very early in non conference play. He is the type of coach who's playing winning football, especially at the college level, and. I, I think I mean technically that UCLA game wasn't that early in non-conference play, was it? That's what we're debating right now. The Oregon game, though, they they gave Oregon a run. That was week one. That was week one. Fresno yeah, State, played, Oregon. Yeah. Wow, take me back. Simpler times. Simpler times. I mean, I don't know if they were because again, Utah Montana <laughs> happened the same day. <laughs> uh, before Oregon went in and somehow beat Ohio State. It, a lot of things happened at the start of last season. I understand why there, there was a John Wilner rumor, which I do not trust that Ohio state was trying to block West coast schools from joining the big 10. And I think we understand why. Yeah. Yeah. It checks they're out. They're scared. It was a 31, 24 Oregon beat Fresno state in week one. Jake Hayner uh, had, am I missing this 30 of 43 for 298 yards and a touchdown. <laughs> Again, Jake, no, we got Michael Penix Jr. We got, we got the coaching staff that led yes. that and Michael yes. Penix Jr. We have the coaching staff who led that, and we have the next best, best thing in Michael Penix Jr. We're going to see points this weekend. And I, I think that is one thing that, look, you and I are going to be in the building, right? A late night for week one. I'm kind it's of, gonna like, be It's going to be quite a weekend because the kickoff Saturday night is 7.30 p.m. Tip-off of the Storm game on Sunday is noon. So not, not a lot, not a lot of rest for me it's in between those. It's going to feel like fall. Right, Th- that'll actually be September by Saturday, and it's going to feel it, like it fall will be, yes, because the you know we're going to have to we're getting into game shape right for for the fall football season. There's going to be late night college football often heading into a ten NFL ten a.m. NFL weekend. So, uh, but no, I I have no concerns about the offense whatsoever. I think this Husky team is going to put up. I still have some concerns about the offense. No concerns. No concerns. I'm hopeful. My my faith in Kalen DeBoer literally could not be higher. They're going to put up 45 points in this game. That's that's precisely usually when they get you. When that faith is high. It's uh, not do, happening. Should we do chances no, of winning? No because it worked be out. Cursed. Chances of winning worked out so well last year against Montana. I think you were like 99. I maybe mean, 100. I should, it was the worst loss in UW program history. Yeah. So they should have been 99. I don't know if they should have been done. Uh, I think I'm, I'm going to put this closer to like, I, I would be pretty surprised if it was a close game, but I'm going to put it closer to 90%. I think that's a nice safe. FPI says 92%. So. We don't want to be, we don't want to be too confident. Look, exactly. I, I have deep down, I have so much confidence in Kalen DeBoer. And, and I think the exciting piece of it is just like, we're really, this feels like we're getting back to it, you know? There was, I remember week one last year, I wasn't there. I didn't go to a UW game until, I think it was the Cal game. Like, they played Cal really early, right? It's like That was the first game. conference game, yeah, which I was not at. But I didn't go to any of the games before then, and I really just didn't even, honestly, COVID-wise, didn't really feel comfortable uh, going to a professional sporting event and seeing how time has passed um, and, you know, how we've progressed as a society. It's like, Going oh yeah, into... COVID is definitely over. I'm, say... I'm not saying COVID is over. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying. But understanding the the uh, 
case fatality rate of the predominant Omicron variant, the fact that both of us have now had COVID, like it, the, the sting is a little bit less. I mean, I think the that. big thing is we've learned that hosting these kind of big uh, events, particularly outdoors, hasn't really contributed to spiking case rates. Yes. So, so I, I, I'm excited for this and feeling like, I think this is going to be the first college football season where we're going to feel like we're really back, you know, like uh, I, Michigan, I think it... Michigan was back. Let me tell you when I went there, <laughs> UW was not back. Indianapolis Mich- really Michigan back. may never have left. Um, oh. But I'm, I'm excited for this and I'm excited for the season going into it. I think this, I think this UW team is a confident bowl team. And I, I really, I see all of the like Utah as Pac-12 favorites, and I just, I really can't buy it. Really can't buy it. You, you think UW is going to beat Utah? I mean, possibly. Like that doesn't. It's not like we're fucking talking about Alabama here. You're like, you think UW is going to beat Utah? Yes, I think that UW is going to beat Utah. That's a, that's a hell of, a, that might be stronger than the Ichiro tank, actually. I, I do not buy that this Utah team is that good. Okay. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Christian Capel on The Athletic did his like best and worst case scenarios for the season and pointed out that his worst case scenario last year was actually more optimistic than what actually <laughs> transpired. But uh, he like glossed over. Oh, the Huskies don't even play Utah. I was going to say, so they, I pulled up the schedule to be like, I mean, they would play Utah in the Pac-12 championship game, but I will confidently say that Utah is not going to be making that Pac-12 championship game. Wouldn't change this year. It will not necessarily be the North versus the South in the championship game. They got rid of the, di- Wait, the divisions. Really? Yeah, it's just the two best teams, top two records. So oh, it could I be like hypothetical U double Oregon in the in the conference championship. That would be very fun. Indeed, it would be. Indeed, uh, it but would be. USC is winning the South. Morgan Noah is winning the South. There is no division. USC will be better than Utah as your take. All right, let's wrap up by talking about the Seahawks, who completed their preseason on Friday with a 27-26 loss, finishing 0-3, still their most impressive performance by far. After that game, Pete Carroll named Geno Smith the starting quarterback. Smith led a drive for a field goal as the starter on Friday, connecting with Tyler Lockett on a pair of chunk passes before a holding penalty and a huge sack move the team backward. Drew Locke played the majority of the game, had some good moments, including a long touchdown pass to Penny Hart, but through three interceptions, not all his fault. Dwayne Eskridge could have offered more help on the first and third was tipped by Aaron Fuller after it hit him in the hands. The Locke's second interception was a dreadful decision that underscored <laughs> Smith's advantage in reliability. Oh, Lord. So that's where we are. I, I mean, mean, it was when they named, you know, Pete pushed back the timeline for naming the starting quarterback. And then when he named Gino the starting quarterback immediately after the game, those turnovers crushed Pete Carroll deep to his core. Oh, for sure. Without question. And why I still feel good about my bet that uh, Drew Luck will not be starting before September is out. We'll see. I, I, I think there is. Yeah, well, I mean, you made the bet. You're the one who bet against me. I No, I understand that. That was before the Drew Lock interceptions this weekend. Uh, and who I, could have ever imagined before that that Drew Locke might have difficulty with turnovers? There's no data that would have suggested that. There is a painful sting to futility, and Geno Smith's middle name is futility. Like there is not. This I mean, it's not a, even. It's not even anything Gino about Geno Smith. Win this quarterback battle. It's Gino not. Smith doesn't produce touchdowns. 
Like, as we talked about before, the issue isn't even anything to do with Geno Smith. It's that Pete Carroll is making this decision as if I've got this great team as long as my quarterback doesn't screw it up, Yeah, which was the case at a certain period of time in Seahawks franchise history. It is not the case now. I'm not super sure if that, that was the case. They were a good team in the first half of 2012, but it took Russ turning it on still. I but also, it, it definitely took yeah, no, I, the, I the think best that defense was, in the NFL. Yeah, they had the Legion of Boom. The Legion of Boom is not walking through that door. Uh, some of the people were not walking through that door because they were part of Seahawks cuts on Tuesday to get down to their original 53-man roster. But wait, wait, wait. Before then, on Geno Smith, I, I just... As they head into their third and fourth week, scoring 10 to 13 points... I, I just I think there's going to be a, there's going to be a little ping in the back of Pete's brain that says maybe we need a little bit more electricity here, you know. I hope so. I mean, I don't know that I hope matter. so. I yeah. I hope, I, I, hope they're, I hope they're as good as we think they're going to be. <laughs> I hope the Seahawks are as exactly as good as we think they're going to be. Just precisely as. Yeah. Can't wait to do the over-under podcast. That's coming up pretty soon, right? Uh, we're going to have to record it next Monday, per tradition. Hello, on Labor Day? That's when we always do it. <laughs> okay, I can't wait. Um, but I just, you look at Geno Smith, and throughout the preseason, it's it's a lot of just like, okay, the reason that the Seahawks didn't score is because of X, Y, or Z, or whatever. And Geno Smith is a totally capable quarterback, and we understand who he is. But being a totally capable quarterback with his talent around him is not enough. And right. it's led to stalled drives. It's led to one penalty ending a drive, you know? And it's led to we're going to be in the, like, 5.5 range in yards per attempt. And I think that's something that that's a bigger deal, you know? You're David Blau. I thought that was interesting, actually. Jared Goff talking to David Blau. Uh, on Hard Knocks last week, and David Blau being like, I played terrible, and Goff being like, your completion percentage was great. And David Blau was like, yeah, but my yards per attempt is nothing. And I was like, wow, they know! I mean, <laughs> The stars yeah. are just like us! People have looked at box scores before. Yeah, I feel like that's an interesting trend in the preseason, that there's a lot of situations where Dallas's quarterbacks on the other side in that game, Chicago in week two of the preseason, a lot of situations where it's like high completion percent And Look, the Seahawks defense last year facilitated completion percentages more than just about any defense in the history of the National Football League. <laughs> so <laughs> let's get it, baby. Maybe, maybe that's the Drop sample Jordan that I'm Brooks looking at too closely. Uh, also, it's just we're not we're not really like, we're talking about Cooper Rush here, right? Like uh, the Cowboys kept only Dak Prescott at quarterback on their roster. Initial <laughs> roster. They saw the game that they beat the Seahawks in, and they said, we're good on all of these quarterbacks. I mean, I, I think some, so they'll be on the practice squad, but uh, yeah. But they'll be on the practice squad because they were not concerned about any of the other 31 NFL teams signing those quarterbacks. Well, there, there is that without question. That, yes. It's a give and a take, you know, when you release a player and expect them to be on the practice squad. You value them. But also, you don't value them so much that if somebody else were to claim them, or you anticipated somebody else would claim them, that you wouldn't release them. Yes, that is definitely the case. It's your time, so. Pete. Cooper Rush beat you. <laughs> I mean, I love that the Cooper Rush only got one series. They were like, well, we can't risk Cooper Rush playing more <laughs> yes. than that. Was it Danucci? See, I was I was at a children's baseball practice. Shouts to Dave Waynehouse. But Ben, ben Danucci was playing during this game. 
Uh, he got some time at the end, but he he wasn't the bulk of it. No, Who was it was it? a lot of Will Greer oh, was Will the primary Greer. quarterback. Ah, the Seahawks point of completion percentage last season not as high all time as I thought it was. <laughs> Only fifty first in NFL history. And I mean, that's out behind... of a lot of defensive seasons in NFL history. Yeah, but also tr- completion percentages have trended dramatically upward recently. So it was only one, two, three, four, five, sixth worst in the NFL last season. Okay. Hey. You so know, there you, you go. You throw Geno Smith behind that line. Oh. You give him. I, I got to say, this is, this is my Seahawks take. Maybe I should okay. save this for the season preview. Like. I'm excited. I'm very excited about Charles Cross and Abe Lucas long-term. Yeah. I think people are getting a little too hyped about the preseason uh, pass protection. You understand that the other teams aren't like doing any of the things to take advantage of their inexperience right now. It's just like somebody's lining up opposite you and rushing. There's no stunts and twists and things like that. Those are the things that are going to show up as rookies. Besides There's also no Aaron Donald. <laughs> well, there, there definitely is. He's, that, he's no, busy that. still destroying cincinnati Bengals, like that's when the shit happens is when they do the the split practices or whatever but like you can see why the seahawks don't want to do joint practices i oh it's like a bloodbath the seahawks have never done those right they have not yeah no i'd feel like every single one is just like yeah let's get our players together and let them beat the shit out of each other no every single one the coaches are like you saw it on hard knocks with dan campbell like don't fight with them and then still the guys. Oh, no, he have to fight with them. It's almost like I, I I don't know why it it just seems like they have a lot of fun fighting with the other teams. Like if you could if you could take the NFL and just let the players do what they wanted to do and like re- reduce the fines and the penalties or whatever, like those players would be brawling. Yes, but it's interesting because it doesn't happen as much during games as in the practices there's something about that practice setting it doesn't happen in games because there's the league there's fines there's that's all true the i shit. guess Aaron Donald's penalty was handled in house yeah with a high five <laughs> and a fist bump i and think, it was, I think it was, there was a bit that, of that a hug and a pointing to their super bowl ring that i think there was in. a bit of a let's be cool and not get injured out there to Aaron it, donald it, it was the hey thanks for not retiring Aaron donald we love you we will do that, anything that for you was a key part of it, yeah. <laughs> it was like, if you want to go crack some Bengals skulls, just don't let the media see you. We good? We good. But... All right, so this Seahawks cuts. <laughs> uh, notable players, Marquise Blair. I No, I would want to agree with you on your Charles Cross and Abe Lucas takes. I think the preseason matters less than it ever has. And Well, that's again, undoubtedly true. We're going to forget about all this. That's That's the best part about the preseason. It's like having a newborn child. You don't think you're going to forget about it when you're in that moment. And all of a sudden, you're like, maybe we should have another baby, right? <laughs> like, I'll see a baby on the street. Uh, thank God for vasectomies. But I'll see a baby on the street come up to somebody and I, who I know. And I'm like, I need to hold this baby, right? And uh, you just you, you quickly forget about things. And the preseason is the newborn baby of the NFL football season. We think it's going to really matter. We think we're going to remember that. And all of a sudden, psychology takes over, right? There, there, there's millions of years of uh, human evolution that has led us to the point of not caring about the preseason the second that the preseason is over. And that's when things really matter for Abe Lucas and Charles Cross. That was definitely not an analogy I expected on this week's podcast. The NFL perfect. preseason is, is literally like a newborn child. Uh, so this, find, find a better analogy. I, I, mean, I, 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 I got nothing. 
All right, let's talk about the Seahawks cuts. Marquise Blair, former second round pick in oh, 2019, dealt with injuries the last couple of gone. seasons. No, <laughs> uh, oh, it was a good Utah team. That Utah team was not as good as this one. Uh, Justin Coleman, 10-3, despite... I think was the final that game. Sounds about right. I think their offense is a little better now than it used to be. Uh, their, their defense was legit good. Mm-hmm. Justin Coleman uh, sounds like he's going to be back. Better middle linebacker than Bobby Wagner. So. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> Bo Melton and Freddie Swain, out wide receiver, both caught Freddie Swain, the number three receiver last year, uh, a sign of pretty much <laughs> how quickly he fell out of favor with a poor training camp. So Pete Carroll said the team hopes to get Coleman back because of his experience. He doesn't have to go through waivers. The Seahawks could place a player, perhaps LJ Collier, who's been sidelined recently on IR, re-sign Coleman. And the reason you do that is if you're placed on IR as part of the cut down to 53, you are out for the season. That's the case with Tyreek Smith, uh, their fifth round draft pick this year. But uh, if you stay on the roster a day and then are placed on IR, you are eligible to return after four uh, weeks. Okay, I was wondering about that. I saw I saw a report on I can't remember. I think it was Matt Crowell, who Ian Furness or somebody was talking about, or Ian uh, uh, Rapport was talking about, and they were like, "He's going on IR, therefore he's done for the year." And I was like, "That doesn't check with." So that that makes a lot of sense, and there was a lot of chatter about LJ Collier being released, but by I expected being injured, it. He kind of saved himself. Potentially so, because uh, it would have been, I think, tough for them to keep him and Adams on the roster together. And Adams definitely was going to make it. He was the star of the preseason. Hello. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, the safety room was kind of interesting. James Jones, not surprising that he made it, but uh, uh, did end up seeing undrafted rookie Joey Blunt stick at that position as a fifth safety for the Seahawks with... uh, Ryan Neal coming back from injury at that spot. So they also kept a bunch of corners. We'll see if that means one of those guys ends up going on IR. Uh, it could be a potential way because they they're gonna have to they're gonna make some claims off waivers. I am quite confident. And middle linebacker, the one spot where you would definitely expect that, where they have very limited depth at that position right now. It's only Nick Ballore behind the starters. Anything else? <laughs> it's only Nick Bloor behind the starters. Uh, I, I just, the decisions aren't that hard when your team isn't very good. And and I think that's part of one of the things. I mean, sometimes thought. they are harder, actually. But yes, it's not as like, oh, I can't believe we're letting player X get away. Yeah. I mean, there was a time when the Seahawks would release a player and they would get signed by somebody pretty much instantly, right? When it yeah, it, it I mean, appears was... that there was so much talent within the organization that basically, like the you know the five to ten players they released during training camp, that is not the case anymore. Like these decisions aren't that hard ultimately. Yeah, so that's why I think they're going to be picking up some additional players. It'll be interesting to see who they are. I there was not. I just feel like it was a kind of uninteresting cut down day across the NFL. The the pieces that that stood out to me. Uh, are we going to talk about Jimmy G or no? Oh, yeah, I guess we should, yes. Um, well, before we get to Jimmy G, was obviously this trade that happened between the Saints and the Eagles, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, uh, going to the Eagles for basically like a swap of late-round picks, right? Almost nothing being transacted here. And I, 
again, I, I don't know that much about Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, but from all reports, he seems like a very capable starting NFL safety. Somebody who's played a lot in the slot. An interesting player, right? And the trade that Howie Rosman, that's his name? Uh, I believe Roseman. Roseman, okay. That Howie Roseman made as Philadelphia and just swapping late-round picks to go out and get better, right? And that's the kind of trade that John Schneider, and I'll probably put a little bit more heat on Pete Carroll here, is really fucking terrible at. And seeing Howie Roseman make a deal like that, especially for a safety who maybe slots in for them as a starter and not give up almost any draft capital. It's not like we're going to next year being like, wow, the Eagles have nothing left in the draft. The Eagles have been very good at adding draft capital. And then you look back. Do you feel like the Seahawks have been that bad? And Quandary Diggs is that, isn't he? Carlos Dunlap was was a very good trade. Yes. Both those, actually, I'll give them credit for that, for both those. So I don't think that's a thing they're unwilling to do. It's just got to be the right fit. But, but you have to look back, what I'm saying, looking back at a safety that they acquired. They basically wagered the short-term future of the organization on picking up a safety at the end of training camp, right? And yeah. is the difference between Jamal Adams and Chauncey Garner-Johnson that great? Right, especially on the field. Like, I mean, the difference between any safety and any other safety can't be that great as far as wins and losses in the NFL, right? You could have the best safety in the NFL and you could have an average safety. And I don't think like wins on the field would necessarily make that big of a difference, ultimately speaking, right? It's not one of the most important positions there is. And the Seahawks taking that kind of draft capital and going out and trading for a player like Jamal Adams and how much it hurt them for the years after that, you can look at the dominoes starting, right? Like it started before this, but you can look at the dominoes starting and it, the train for Jamal Adams ultimately basically led to them trading Russell Wilson. You know, it was, I yeah. think it was a huge piece of why they felt like they needed to trade Russell Wilson was the draft draft capital that they'd lost in that Jamal Adams trade. Well, especially and after that, that turned lost. out to be a top 10 pick. Yeah, Exactly. And, and I think they really recognized that they needed to get back. They needed to rebuild. And they were like, how do we do this, right? Nobody else is worth these picks. You know, nobody else on the roster. They can't turn around and trade Bobby Wagner for a first-round pick or whatever. It is, if you want to rebuild, if you want to build the talent back up, which I think they've done. This, you know, no criticism to Charles Cross or Abe Lucas or whomever. But, like, I think you could see that, you know, there's the 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 meme of the one domino going much bigger, right? To, yes. There's the... Uh, uh, Kyrie Irving watches a YouTube video all the way to James Harden's traded to Philadelphia. Like that's kind of what happened is the Seahawks made a decision a couple of seasons ago to go out and trade for Jamal Adams at the end of preseason and give up a lot of draft capital. And ultimately it led to Russell Wilson being a fucking Denver Bronco. I I think that would only qualify under the domino meme now because it's not like the Jamal Adams trade was obviously an extremely huge decision at the time. Like it's not like that snuck up on us. The domino was big to start with, and then yeah. But like we're talking about the greatest quarterback in franchise history. Sure. You know, I the domino. If you're going to start with another domino, it's got to be like Marquise Blair not being the answer at that position. That domino's name is Tedrick Thompson. Like oh no. but that is part of it, missing on so many different drafts, especially at safety, I mean, right? W- when the Seahawks go out and trade for veterans, it's because of the fact that the draft picks they've made at the, that position haven't worked. So it's LJ Collier leads to Carlos Dunlap. 
Yes. Which again was a good trade. Yeah, that uh, was a fine trade. But like not recognizing the Seahawks not recognizing that you could go get these players. You could go get Quandary Diggs. Quandary Diggs on the field has been a better player than Jamal Adams has since Jamal Adams has been in Seattle. It's undoubtable, right? It's like it's not a debate about who has been a better player in the field between Q Diggs. It's undoubtable award. It, it is now, actually. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's just been coined. But uh, <laughs> the you understand what I'm saying, though. Like, seeing yeah. this deal, it, it, it kind of gave me... We knew it at the time. We knew I'm, that it wasn't a good deal at the time. Yes. And it just... I, I, I saw that, and I was like, this is what... That was the moment, right? They made it through these moments before. They traded for Jimmy Graham. They traded for Percy Harvin. Whatever. And they made it through those moments because there was so much talent on the roster that they were able to withstand it. And, and because they, those were one pick at the end of the first round, they traded those they traded those picks when they already knew what the picks were, right? As opposed to trading two future picks to the Jets. That's what gives, creates the potential downside of one of those ends up the 10th pick in the draft. Um, so I, I just saw that deal and I was like, I really wish that the Seahawks, in hindsight, obviously being 2020, there's a, there's another scenario and another you know, alternate universe where they trade for Jamal Adams and Russ Wilson is still here and they're a very good team next year. So I, I can see that that world exists. And I think if they still had Russ Wilson on the roster, we heard Bill Barnwell tell us last week, right? What that would look like. They'd be the prime candidate for bounce back this year. We'd be going into the season looking at that over under, not saying, wow, they cannot get it low enough. Literally, they cannot get it low enough. We would be looking at that and saying to ourselves, I feel like they could be an 11 win team, right? We'd but, have the same excitement we have about this UW football opener. Absolutely. Well, the Denver Broncos would mean a lot less in week one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that would be on the schedule. Do not think that would be the schedule. Uh, but but knowing knowing that those deals are out there, I think it just it kind of stung a little bit, understanding what it meant for the Seahawks organization, trading for a safety, and then seeing that there are good deals. There's deals to be had for safeties around this time period. They, even the Seahawks did it, and just looking at that it stung more than obviously any of the cuts at cut down day well as we mentioned we'll have our annual seahawks season preview and nfl over unders with third pelton brother ben baldwin coming early next week as in addition to a regular weekly pod where we will be previewing said oh, wow. seahawks broncos season opener previewing a game against russell wilson I can't even wrap my mind around it. Oh my god! And hopefully we will not have to emergency pod before then. I think we had to emergency pod after Montana. Uh, did we emergency pod after I think, Montana? I think we angry emergency pod. Oh, we did. Yeah, I'm we pretty did. sure we did. So fingers crossed, they will not be a podcast before then. Oh boy, well that bad note. things can happen. Thanks for listening. Either that or the Jamal Adams trade. <laughs> If the Seahawks trade Jamal Adams and get two firsts, I'm we're emergency potting. But the, but they traded for Jamal. It was an emergency pod when they traded for I Jamal know. Adams on cut down day. Maybe they'll be able to trade Jamal Adams. Either Thanks for listening. Up, up fifth or six. Thanks. Tuesday night, we had our first two Pelton Cast fantasy drafts, both of which I participated in. The uh, home of the Super Bowl Forty Eight champions, our traditional East East Coast and uh, England draft for those listeners. Uh-huh. Uh, 
uh, earlier in the evening, and then our Pelton Cast Champions League draft later in the evening, which you participated in because is discussed at the t- is discussed previously. <laughs> you I got the it. spot by default because I had two teams that qualified for the oh Pelton my Cast god, Champions that's League. the reason. Yeah, you've been over okay. this. God damn it! Ugh. Both of my teams made the playoffs sh- last year. I should have tastefully passed on this. Wait, so I, I, I don't want to talk about this podcast style. I just want to talk about this because to talk about it because we haven't even talked about these drafts. We have not, no. So, okay, I was in the uh, Champions League draft, which was second of these two drafts, and all I saw was messages. It was you and Ben and Zach being like, I thought people were going to draft the good players. Why aren't they drafting the good players? And I'm like, there's literal children in this draft, people, please. I don't know. One child, yes. I don't know that that was the issue. What what was the difference? Like, did the, you notice specifically that players you had targeted went was that that was also twelve teams, right? Correct. Twelve all these teams. Are 12 PPR teams. snake. Same, yeah, all the rules are the same in all these leagues. Yeah. Okay. Did you notice that players that you were targeting went significantly earlier in the Champions League than they did in the other league? Oh, hundred percent. And I kept noticing because I I draft using Football Outsiders Kubiak projections. Yeah. And like whoever was at the top kept going in the champions league and in the first draft they would like hang out there for an extended period of time Uh so it was very different i mean you know every draft has its own feel because of where you are like in the first draft i was seventh so dead in the middle of the rounds that's the best fucking pick too i don't know if it was exactly where i wanted to be but i definitely do not like having back-to-back picks so of course in champions league i got the 12th pick and had you know the longest possible wait between my picks oh. every single time. And then you and I were back to back. You had 11. God damn it. And it so was we a, kept... a cruel twist of fate. I think I took many I more of your players that you wanted than I, you took players that I wanted. Oh, that's such a douchey thing to say. I'm just based on what you said. I was behind. I was behind. I didn't Zach. take players you wanted. I guarantee you, I took players you wanted. I'm sure you did. I'm saying I took more. Uh, I was behind Zach and Ben. It was all play- okay. You took Romeo Dubs. Good. Good for you. We're right around me. That wasn't the one you were complaining about. Uh, <sighs> we're they were right around me in the other draft. So I I dealt with this. Zach kept taking guys I wanted to pick before me. DK Metcalf notably at one point, and then DeAndre Hopkins oh, wow. in the ninth round. You would get. I. I am not. That's. That actually is kind of a steal for DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah. Once you get to that point where he's not a starter for you, and then he just comes in and becomes a starter, like I, oh, I would have God, loved to now, get him. Now that I'm thinking of that. So. And I didn't end up with him in either draft. So oh really? I'm upset about that. To me, the person who I felt like was really fucking me the most was uh, Zach Chabal. <laughs> Did you feel this and also? I didn't. I couldn't necessarily feel that, but he was certainly taunting me the most. Uh, I don't I don't know about that, but it was more like there were players that I wanted and I felt like it would almost always be Zach who was the one taking them. But the thing is, when you're at the end of the draft, like with the, the, basically the place where you and I both were, you can't really control things in no. any way. You're just kind of like, I got to get my guys right now, even if I have to reach by 20 picks. Exactly. Like I had a game plan for what round I wanted to take guys in the other draft and like it played out. I think I moved up Dak Prescott around from where I wanted to take him, but it pretty much played out. I took Damian Pierce where I had him slotted in. So in the other league, it was like, I can't do that here. In the Champions League? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I want to go through this really fast. So the first round, basically chalk. Uh, I was hoping to get Stefan Diggs. I had the 11th pick. 
I wanted to do running back wide receiver with the first two picks. And if Kelsey was out there, I would have considered a tight end. But so Diggs goes pick 10. I'm like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to take Najee Harris as basically like, I, I do think when you look at the combination of like potential and touches, I, I, t- I felt like Najee Harris was like the last one that I was interested in. You took the running back, Leonard Fournette, right after me, who I was just like, I'm not drafting Leonard Fournette. I'm sorry. I'm not drafting Joe Mixon. I'm not drafting Leonard Fournette. I, I would have considered Saquon. I, I was interested. I, oh, Saquon's I, so I, Kubiak projection is so bad. Is it really? I used the, the ringer PPR. I just, just have a chart. Just have something to look at as yeah. kind of like getting a general sense of like where players are. There were a couple players that were later in the draft where I was like, damn, I'm a little shocked that these players are so low at running back, which is Nick Chubb and Ezekiel Elliott. Yeah, Chubb was not that good by the projections either. Ezekiel Elliott was quite good, which is why, against my better judgment, I ended up drafting him in the third round. Oh, I think you got yourself a bit of a steal in Zeke. I mean, just everything we've heard from Jerry Jones is like the the offense runs through Zeke. They're going to try to feed him the ball one way or another. We'll see if that actually comes comes to fruition. But like he is he's going to go into the starting running. So I did. I drafted Najee Harris. You went with Leonard Fournette with that pick, which feels a little bit a little Kubiak, steep to me. Kubiak really loved him, but not as much as Kubiak loves Travis Kelsey, who is number three overall in their projections. Holy shit. And so I didn't draft him in the other league because I didn't feel like there was a good way for me to go. There was I didn't feel confident about the running back. Uh tight end i didn't want to go wide receiver tight end with, with my first two picks i guess is the point so yeah. i didn't end up taking kelsey there and i hoped that maybe i could have gotten him in the third round i knew that wasn't going to happen here so i went for that kelsey with those two picks and was like i'll figure out the wide receivers later i mean i i definitely wanted travis kelsey i suppose i could have taken him but it and i'm happy i did this it felt like the running backs just drop off so extreme that's that's the thing yeah I was like, I need to get a running back with one of these two picks, and I needed to get him. I don't. Would you have taken Najee Harris if I wouldn't have? No, his projection wasn't that good. Okay. Uh, you take Kelsey. I went Devontae Adams right there. I actually kind of... He was the third player I considered. I drafted him in the other league in the first round. Okay. I kind of went heavy on Raiders <laughs> unintentionally, but like, I mean, I could see that Raiders offense being top five in the NFL. Uh... uh yeah, you went back-to-back Raiders, Adams, then Darren Waller. I mean, it's so many picks, right? So basically, like, I draft Devontae Adams, and then you and I aren't picking for the rest of eternity, right? Like, you're just, I'm just crossing players off. And it's I not like... There was 20 picks between your two picks. I was hoping maybe Nick Chubb would fall. There weren't a lot of players this early round three where I'm like, I don't really care. I definitely don't want James Conner. I'm not that excited about Javante Williams. Mike Evans, Cam Akers, T. Higgins, David Montgomery. Like, you just look at those players, even from a, they might be good fantasy players, but you just don't get excited about them. I, Mon- I drafted Montgomery in the fourth round in the other league because he was the most reliable running back left. It's like, he's fine. He's a fine running back, but you're not excited about it, right? Okay. And and if you're looking for upside plays. Uh, so let me get to the third round, and I'm like, I need to get, it. There's there's a tier of tight ends which is, it is run out at this point. This is the last player as part of the tier. Mark Andrews is gone. Kyle Pitts is gone. You took Kelsey. And I do like getting a tight end, especially in PPR early. 
because I'm not trying to fuck around with the waiver tight ends at that place. Oh, I'm I'm doing it heavy in the other league. I didn't drop the tight end in that league until my very final pick. You either get it here or you get it never. Is yes. kind of my perspective. It's the same with quarterbacks. So I go Darren Waller with that pick. And that's where I went Zeke and then went AJ Brown with my other pick. I was pink picking between him and Mike Williams, who didn't end up going for another round surprisingly this was the place after that so i went travis etienne jr which it's a little scary drafting a jaguars running back at this point but i think the jags are gonna be quite a bit better this year right like you look at who's running their offense it's so different than it was under doug peterson uh and and just like i was looking at those running backs and i'm like maybe clyde edwards elair i really thought there was a chance i was getting damian pierce and the next pick like an idiot <laughs> I, because you look at where he's ranked in ESPN and you're like, fuck, he'll be there, you know? I mean, but, I drafted him in the sixth round in the other league, so I don't know. Exactly. Like, it's a much more deft group of people, though. So I went Travis Etienne because I'm like, I need a running back here because it's about to fall way off. Same way about DK, where I was like, I want DK, maybe he'll fall. Again, not going to happen. Uh, AJ Brown was a little bit of my do not draft list, literally because I saw a TikTok saying not to draft him. Not oh, oh, well, do you trust but everything it, you see on TikTok? There's not, he has a less accurate quarterback than he's had, and it's a run heavy offense. Oh, good. He wasn't playing in a run heavy offense before. Kittle was the one where I think Kittle's probably been like shorted because of the injuries. So he fell to the fifth. I was yeah. a little surprised by that. Uh, Cortland Sutton was another player that I wanted to look at in the fifth. And I was like, I'm getting a Broncos wide receiver one way or another, <laughs> just in, in the possibility that Russ just totally breaks out. Uh, so I went Juju Smith-Schuster with that next pick. Purely an upside play. Both of my picks in these two, Schuster and then Jerry Judy, were just like, I mean, Juju's probably the number one receiving option for Pat Mahomes. You know, where I'm like, he could blow up. He could be fine. He was terrible last year. And I think the last couple of years with the Steelers, like barely could get on the field. And But uh, I'm like, I'll take a risk in round five because there's a chance that he, he could be wide receiver number one in fantasy. I was still in more, well, Chris Godwin was my risk coming back from the ACL injury, but uh feel pretty good about that where, where I got him. And then Josh Jacobs is my safe third running back, and then I'll start taking shots on potential after this. Josh Jacobs is definitely like, uh, I need a starting running back to slot in the lineup. I'm not trying to fucking play Kareem Hunt or whatever. Like, I'm not trying to start Kareem Hunt or Ken Walker, like a player who's not going to get all the touches. I know he'll get touches. But I know that he's not going to give me like a ton. Uh, Amonra St. Brown, I was a little bit like when he went, I was like, ah, Amonra. Isn't uh, Amonra? Amonra. Allen Robinson was another one who I, I had definitely circled Allen Robinson as somebody who I was excited about. Uh, and then Rashad Penny goes at the beginning of round seven, where I was like, he, he was sticking around for too long. I, I don't think oh, you should Penny. see how long Rashad Penny stuck around in the other league where I drafted him. Are you kidding me? You drafted him? I drafted him in the eighth round. Oh my God. You got Damian Pierce in the league. sixth and Rashad Penny in the eighth. I mean, they're not great PPR running backs, but if you need a running back, and I think the thing about Penny is like he's either going to get touches or he's going to be hurt, you know? I mean, I also have to like avenge last year when I lost at least one of the finals I was in because of the fact I didn't play Rashad Penny in week 17 or 18 or whatever it was. Um, 
But that that to me is like what I'm looking for in a running back. I'm like, they, I either want them to be really good or they're going to be injured, and I know not to play them. You know, you don't want right. a player who's going to get like, I mean, your Josh Jacobs is like a safe player or whatever if you need 14 carries for 70 yards and you hope they get a touchdown. But like, when you're, you're drafting, you kind of want to look upside. I feel like. Yeah, and I feel like I went even more extreme with that the next round with Devin Singletary. As far as upside. No, as far as lack of upside. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Is, I mean, Josh Cooks is the dude, right? Like, that was one that... You didn't draft him, did you? Josh Cooks? Yes. No. I think that's one that Zach drafted. He he went higher than I expected in oh both drafts, God. I would say. I mean, in both drafts? Yeah. Okay. So I went Christian Kirk here just being like, look, they paid Christian Kirk. They're going to throw him the ball. These were both upside wide receivers. I went George Pickens because I was like, he's going to be gone by the time it's my next pick. If I want George Pickens, this is my last chance to get in. Yeah. Uh, you, I feel like these are a couple of safe picks that you made. Amari Cooper and Devin Singletary. Oh, very much so. It was It was after that, actually, that I started swinging. That's, that was, yeah, it wasn't, you weren't taking a lot of players that I wanted in between there. Michael Thomas was somebody who I kind of had a little bit. You didn't get Hopkins. Uh, I've seen some people be pretty excited about Ramadre Stevenson. Alan I just kind of I looked back at it when after I made that pick, I was like, "Wait, Hopkins was still out there." That was the perfect time to draft Hopkins. I, I mean, I, immediately I see why you would decision. choose Amari. It's Amari Cooper. It's like Amari Cooper, Mike Thomas, DeAndre Hopkins, right? Like they're all kind of part of the same tier. Like have been elite level wide receivers. One of them is probably going to be really good, but it's a little bit difficult to project exactly which one. There's a lot of good wide receivers around that territory. Um, and then James Cook goes in round nine. He went in the right ninth round in both drafts. Ben took him in the other league. Uh, I mean, he is a purely speculative pick. Yeah. If he's if he's the Bills' third down back, that's not necessarily a like must start running back. No. But it's it's an upside pick and it's a little bit early but you're not taking him in the third round or whatever so if if you're taking a purely upside player in the ninth round i think it's probably a pretty safe bet uh ken walker going i i was just like i mean you could see the future right ken if ken walker is healthy and rashad penny's injured he's going to get a lot of carries i i managed to grab ken walker in the third in the <laughs> ninth round in the other league well he went in the ninth round here too yeah i well i went penny and walker back to back so was it Patton who also got ken walker who is that i don't is that lucas tom tom brady as a system quarterback yes okay so lucas picked up ken walker uh and i'm just like fuck it we're taking there's literally the running back well is dry as far as you're like, like, I'm going to take a running back named Kenneth one way or another. <laughs> yeah. So and help like, me, God. I am taking a swing at running back and went with Kenneth Gainwell, Philadelphia Eagles. I'm just like, I, I'm taking the biggest swing possible. And then Zach pointed this out. I wanted, I wanted Russell Wilson. And that's when he took Russell Wilson. Oh, no, this wasn't when he pointed out. It was later that he pointed out. Yes. Uh, b- because I was like, I'm going to take Kenneth Gainwell. And then I might take Russ with the next pick. Felt a little bit early for me to take a quarterback. I still just think that the variation between Russell Wilson and I drafted Derek Carr eventually, they're probably going to be pretty similar. I got Derek Carr's picking up Devontae Adams, you know? I anticipated the run on quarterbacks 
one, two, three, four of them went in the next round in the yeah. no, 10th round. You took, so, you took Russ at the right time. Uh, I also took back-to-back players named Wilson. Oh. Russ and Garrett Wilson. Garrett Wilson, of course, drafted with that Jamal Adams pick. Oh, God. Uh, Jacoby Myers was one where I was like, he's the Patriots' number one receiver. You know, and that that was one that the like sleepers, like the ringer sleepers, they were banging pretty hard on Jacoby Myers. But I felt like at this point, I'm basically like, I know that I'm going to end up with three pretty good receivers. It's a PPR league. One way or another, I'm going to have three starting caliber receivers. And it really is like running backs is where the void is right now. And you see like, you know, Melvin Gordon in the timeshare, Michael Carter. It There's nothing particularly exciting around here and then you, you say quarterbacks will start going and it's like rogers goes who i would have drafted i had this thought that i was going to draft trey lance and... i drafted rogers rogers stayed out there but clearly no one wanted to have aaron Rodgers. i drafted him in the 11th round in the other league that's only one round later but yes uh i i had this flight of fancy that i would draft both trey lance and matthew stafford or somebody like that and just have like an all potential i mean like to me, Trey Lance is it's a bit of a speculative pick. It's one of those players For who sure. like he might be off your roster by week four. Uh, this is where Zach made fun of you taking a quarterback ahead of me. Yes. After I had just taken a quarterback. And and look, the reality is, do I care that much about Tyler Algier? You know? You clearly did in the moment. I, I should well, it's more like you have your you target a player and you're like, that's the guy that I want. And when somebody takes the guy that you want, you get mad. He took Khalil Herbert, who I was definitely going to draft with one of these two picks. So I was like, th- there's a handful of upside players, and you're like, I just want to scoop up as many of these upside players as possible. So I was like, I remember I had Khalil Herbert last year. I liked him. I was kind of excited about the possibility of drafting him. I should have definitely waited on the quarterback because you clearly weren't going to take one. It just didn't, I don't know, I have three children. Fuck it. <laughs> Fantasy genius, everybody. Uh, and then with my other pick, the one of the handful of players I have in both leagues who Kubiak loved and to me is a great like upside swing, Julio Jones. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good pick. It's a very, very stacked receiver core, though. Like, yeah, well, fortunately, I also have one of the other receivers, too. So, but, but this could work out. I mean, can you see the future where it's like, yeah, Mike Evans gets a few more catches. Chris Godwin has some catches. Julio Jones has some catches. Like some weeks, it's going to be okay, but they sort of split time, right? They Possible. split the vote, yeah. as you would say. You've got two of them, but you probably have the two least valuable of them. Uh, honestly, like a better hope is that one of them, in fantasy terms, not in real life terms, is that one of them gets injured or whatever, because some of those receivers are going to miss time of those three. Correct. And if you can have, look, if Mike Evans is hurt and you have both Julian and Chris Godwin, they become quite valuable. Uh, I took a swing on Josh Palmer right there where I'm like, I'm all in on the Chargers and I'm only having one Chargers player. Like, I kind of need to, I got to get in on the Chargers train. Then in the next round, you go with Isaiah Pacheco, who oh, I'm, I don't I'm think I've up, ever heard of. Literally, oh, people are very excited about Pacheco. I thought it was funny that Ben did DJ Dallas instead of uh, Travis Homer. <laughs> yeah, I was like, was Homer's that guy right there. No, it was fu- kind of funny. I wrote three names. I was so pissed 
you get to the end of the draft and you're like around 13, 14. You're like, I hate everybody. I just have these. And I wrote Isaiah Spiller, who got drafted right beforehand, I think. That was that was a Zach pick, yes. Yes. Isaiah Spiller, uh, your fucking dude who drafted at the end of the draft, Tyrion. Uh, I have him in Bud League somehow. Do you? <laughs> I wrote that, I wrote that down. And I think there was one other receiver. And I just I just crossed off Isaiah Spiller and I was like, I hope Isaiah Pacheco makes it here. And you you know, when you're in the draft, you're just like the entire draft depends on this pick. Like yes. it, it feels so stupid in hindsight to look at it and you're like, and you drafted this guy I've never heard of. And I'm like, yeah, Isaiah Pacheco is really kind of like the cornerstone of the entire draft in round 13. <laughs> you know, like everything was building to this. <laughs> But it feels like that in the moment. Like when you drafted Tyler Algier, it was more just like I'd been circling Tyler Algier for so many rounds to draft him with this pick, and then you draft him. It's yep. not that I care. It's not like I think that Tyler Algier is going to be an important fantasy player. He The most likely outcome is that he is not on your roster by like week three Correct. or whatever. But... When you're in that moment and you have somebody circled, you're like, I need Tyler Algier on my team. That's that's who's going to pull it off. You know, fuck Najee Harris and Devontae Adams. They're not going to win me this this fantasy football league. Tyler Algier is who's going to win it. So anyway, I'm pretty pissed about uh, Zach taking Isaiah Spiller. <laughs> 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 Who I learned of earlier in the day. Uh I then went with my, I'm going to just draft for upside in the last two rounds. So I'll take my kicker in defense here. And what, uh, what's the difference? I see. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that logic. It's just like Could you have drafted for upside with these picks rather than those picks. Or you're saying you have I would have drafted the same players yeah. is what I'm telling you. So therefore I got slightly better kicker and got a defense with a great matchup in week one, which is my I mean, main, main strategy. Who do, who do the Niners play in week one? Chicago. Well, that was my next pick, Justin Fields. Yeah, there you go. Uh, again, I'm just like, I, I want an upside quarterback. I thought about Justin Fields from that standpoint. I A lot of players you draft, at least that I draft when I think of it, I'm like, I'm going to keep this player probably, if something exciting happens between now and the season, and I release Justin Fields, whatever. Yeah, but, I mean, my thought is like, I'm only interested in players who potentially could add value after week one, because otherwise I'm just going to replace them with somebody off waivers anyway. That That's why I think Justin Fields, I was like, if Justin Fields is monster in week one, if he destroys your 49ers defense, <laughs> right, then all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I've got a steal in Justin Fields in round 14, and he's going to stay on the roster. Or if he does bad again, I'm not going to start him. Derek Carr is going to be starting in that game. So, and... 50% chance I call him David Carr at some point during the season. The, But, like, if Justin Fields is bad against the Niners, I'll just release him, you know? Yeah. He has one week to prove himself. And then, this was the most annoying. Most everybody else, it was funny, there were a lot of players. Albert Okwebunam? Okwebunam, I believe is how it's pronounced. Again, another player I learned of, like, during the draft or really close to it, and I'm kind of just like, I, I was, I thought about it. I drafted him in the other league. Having two tight ends on the roster, though, is like, Gerald Everett oh. was one. Oh, he's my starting tight end in the other league. <laughs> wow. Kubiak really likes him. That is a will seat. The Broncos have another starting tight end, don't they? 
No, they treated him. It was Noah Fant was I the other they one. They had there. another dude though on top of Noah Fant. Uh, I don't think so. So he's the Broncos starting tight end. I, I kind of like it. He's got real Hollister potential. <laughs> uh, when you put it that way, uh, they upside, have Greg, Greg Dulcich who they drafted in the third round this year. That's the other upside guy. of Disley, downside of Hollister. You know, Dude, when was the last time? Uh, this is probably more of a Seahawks issue. But when was the last time the Seahawks had a worth starting in fantasy tight end? Well, Jimmy Graham. Was it even really Jimmy Graham though? True, but he did get a lot of touchdowns. Uh, and then you and your last two picks, these are your, these are your extreme upside players. Correct. That's why I went for Romeo Dubs. Having learned how to pronounce that on this podcast and Tyrion Davis-Price. Didn't we talk about Romeo Dubs? Yeah. I'm saying I learned how to oh. pronounce it on this podcast. Today or a few no, weeks ago? No, a couple weeks ago. Okay. I feel like the Romeo Dubs hype has kind of gone down. I agree. Maybe it was when Aaron Rodgers complained about all his receivers a few weeks ago. <laughs> I definitely, I, I starred Romeo Dubs early and I was like, you know what? I'm good. I'm good on that. Like the reality, I, I cannot imagine Romeo Dubs staying on your roster past like week three. He got drafted in the 12th round in the other league though. So I was, Romeo I, Dubs where I got him. Yeah. That was a person who did not update their priors. Who was it? Uh, that was Ben Peacock made that pick. I, I feel like early in preseason, Romeo Dubs was that dude. And then over time, some other players kind of like emerged. Like my boy, who I learned of at around uh, 7.30 p.m. or so as the draft was going, Isaiah Pacheco. Yes. <laughs> the corner, I like to call him the cornerstone of the draft. Uh, <laughs> a, a lot of people were waiting for the Pacheco pick. And then, and then this person who I also learned of during the draft, Tyrion Davis-Price. Yeah, the uh, 49ers took him pretty high in the draft, all things considered, for having drafted a running back pretty high into the 2021 draft and then having Elijah Mitchell, who they drafted in the sixth round, and were just their starter. high? Who was the other one? Uh, the running back from Ohio State. Is he gone now? No, he's still there. I got all Jeff, these guys. Jeff Wilson? It is not Jeff Wilson. He's there as well. Their running back, their starting running backs are Elijah Mitchell, Jeff Wilson, and then Tyrion Davis Price. That is their running back depth chart in order. Uh, it was Trey Sermon was who they drafted in the uh, second round hurt? in 2021. I mean, I thought he played there. I guess he was also a third round pick in 2021. Uh, I thought he played last week when I watched their preseason game. I did not see him on the Niners depth chart. I don't know how much it really matters, but I, they did, I looked. They I looked did at keep Romeo him on Dubs. the roster. He's he's listed as fourth right now on ESPN. Okay. I, I was looking around at the Packers, and the Packers have slightly more wide receivers. Not good wide receivers, but they have slightly more wide receivers than, you know, you see like Randall Cobb in the mix still. It's like Lazard. And I was like, Romeo Dubs is a little bit too deep. It's the fucking 15th round. What the hell, <laughs> what the hell do I care? No, no, no. I, I would not. I This is just my logic for literally taking Isaiah Pacheco over <laughs> Romeo Dubs. You know, that's really what, it, and also that Pacheco plays a more premium fantasy position at running back. So, uh, yeah, that's why I got Tyrion Davis Price at that position. I fe- I felt good though in the end, like so. Basically, like my skill position players are 
uh, Derek Carr, but Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, Devontae, Juju, Jerry Judy, some combination of Christian Kirk, George Pickens, Jacoby Myers. Somebody's going to break out from there. I'm just like, there are three starting fantasy wide receivers in here. And then Darren Waller. The running backs, I feel a little bit worse about Najee, uh, Travis Etienne. And then it, it drops off pretty significantly there to Kenneth Gainwell and my boy Isaiah Pacheco. But I mean, it's just tough with running backs. I, I think if anybody left this draft feeling really good about their running backs, they probably are uh, feeling a little bit worse about everything else. So I have Russ at quarterback, Fournette, Elliott, uh, Josh Jacobs, Singletary, and then Tyler Algier and Tyrion Davis-Price at running back. Yours are like a little bit more middle of the road. Yes. What about your receivers? A.J. Brown, Chris Godwin, Amari Cooper, Garrett Wilson, Julio Jones, Romeo Dubs. You kind of went with a little bit of an agent team. I did, yes. By fantasy purpose. I hope. Ezekiel is probably like 27 years old. But... <laughs> right. So. All of your starters have like are, are established NFL players. Correct. I've got a lot of competence on this roster. And then your like high upside players are Garrett Wilson, Tyler Algier, Dubs, Tyrion Davis Price. Jones, even though he's older, is a high upside. <laughs> Julio Jones. <laughs> yeah. I think that kid's got it. He's got Moxie. <laughs> I feel like he's going to make it one day. He might be the next A.J. Brown. <laughs> I uh, thought he was, you know, he might be the next Antonio Brown, right? <laughs> In this context. Uh, yeah, you definitely went, like, I mean, I went all upside on a lot of positions. But I guess at the same time, like, Juju Smith-Schuster is not, like, a fresh player. It's more just a change of scenery for him. Yeah. It's a situational thing. Well, wait, I need to look at this actual false team to see how many players there actually were that I was annoyed about. Dak Prescott, David Montgomery, Ugh, Damian Pierce. I definitely wanted Jamar Chase, go Chase going into the draft. Mark Andrews, Hunter Renfro, Chase Claypool, AJ Dillon, Ramondre, Michael Gallup, Khalil Herbert. Trevor Lawrence, Spiller, and Ogunbunam. Uh, to clean that up, Okuwe Bunam is how to pronounce that. Bunam? Okuwe Bunam. All right. We'll I mean, have I to learn like, that before next week. I just like seeing a team. He's going to have six for 110. Um, <laughs> I, I like seeing a roster where it's just like these are all skill position players. There's not like, there's no fluff, right? And that's that's what we're dealing with in the fantasy in the uh, Champions League here. Yep, it's not like you don't look at a team and you're like, wow, they drafted a backup defense, except for Kyle's garbage team. Wow, it legit is harder. It's it's it, no, his garbage out... team is pretty good though. Like Mahomes, he just had the first pick: Mahomes, Jonathan Taylor, Chubb, Keenan Allen, Gabe Davis, George Kittle, Devonte Smith, Robert Woods, Robbie Anderson, Tyler Boyd. Like there, he doesn't have a lot of upside players. It's just like, what is Rex Burkhead doing on a fantasy roster? But and Jarek McKinnon, it's not 2014, uh, but it's definitely not not a bad roster. It it is it is a different world playing in the Champions League. I feel like it has worked out as I intended when I envisioned fantasy relegation and promotion. 
Also, shouts to the dude, Matt Spouse, for being out at ThingFest and uh, seeing Illuminati hotties. Who won last year? Mark Stewart? Sounds right. Not me is the answer. Respect to winning the Champions League. That sounds right. <clears throat> Justin Herbert, Javante Williams, Clyde Edwards, Elayer, Justin Jefferson, Tyreek Dam, Jefferson and Tyreek, plus Allen Robinson, Pat Fryermuth. He, he kind of punted on tight end. But Hollywood Brown, dude, Hollywood Brown was out there for so long. And where he, where he drafted Hollywood Brown, it's just like, this is a steal that all of us are just, for some reason, avoiding him. Damian Harris, Brady, Traylon Burks, who I definitely kind of wanted. Dawson Knox, Chark, and Jalen Tolbert from the Cowboys. I think that's a pretty good roster. He, did, he didn't draft a running back super high, but those receivers of Justin Jefferson, Tyreek Hill, and Allen Robinson. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> we'll see if this year you can earn your way back into the championship. I've got League. two shots. <laughs> On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.